Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi and Tabisolo Hoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the controversial anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine thrust back into the spotlight after a U.S. doctor promotes it as an effective cure for COVID-19. South Africa mourns the passing of television stalwart Candy Molloy. And in economics news, Kenya's central bank holds its benchmark lending rate at 7.0% for the third time in a row. But first up, the news with Onel Nzinti. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Two Zimbabwean doctors have confirmed to the BBC that seven babies were still born at Harare Central Hospital in Zimbabwe on Monday night. This after, urgent treatment was delayed because of staffing issues. Nurses are on strike nationwide because of lack of personal protective equipment and other concerns. The health sector has recently been hit by a COVID-19 procurement scandal. Enoch Dongor is the president of the Zimbabwe Nurses Association. It is the responsibility of the employer uh, to make sure the nurses are adequately resourced, are adequately paid. You expect that nurse, that midwife, uh, to be at work uh, uh, using what? If government keeps on ignoring the demands of the nurses, definitely we might see more and more loss of life. Cote President Alison Ouattara's RHDP party has officially nominated him as a candidate for elections set for October 31. Ouattara has decided to reserve his decision to seek a third term for now. In March, Ouattara 76 said he would not run again to give way to the next generation. But everything changed with the death of his prime minister and hopeful successor, Amadou Gon, of a cardiac arrest on July 8. The Ivorian opposition strongly protests against a third term in office for Ouattara, who has been in power for 10 years. South Africa's ruling ANC party's Houting Provincial Executive Committee will hold a briefing meeting later on the outcome of a special meeting. The committee is under pressure to take action against presidential spokesperson Kusela Digo and Houting Province Health MEC Dr. Bandile Masugu. Digo has taken leave of absence amid a probe into the awarding of two one million US dollars contracts for the supply of PPEs to Royal Bagda Project, a company in which her husband is a director. The contracts have since been cancelled. She and her husband, Amabata King Tandisizwe Digo, have revealed a joint statement in which they say we it in which they reiterate that rather that there was no corruption in the Houting Health Department's awarding of the tender. South Africa has currently registered 165,659 active cases of coronavirus with the recovery rate at 63%. In total, 471,123 cases have been recorded in, and the national COVID-19-related death toll has increased to 7,497. This after, 240 more fatalities were reported in the last 24-hour cycle. Zolega Godashir explains. Gauteng recorded the highest number of fatalities at 156, followed by the Eastern Cape with 34, KwaZulu-Natal with 27 and the Western Cape with 23. The Western Cape is approaching the 3,000 fatalities mark and now stands at 2,983 total deaths, followed by Gauteng with 1,836 and the Eastern Cape with 1,579. This while the number of infections continue increasing, with Gauteng remaining the epicenter of the pandemic in the country. 
The World Health Organization has warned that younger people who tend to get a milder form of COVID-19 may suffer from long, longer-term effects. Research seems to be indicating that even though younger people appear to recover from COVID-19 without getting crit- critically ill, that does not have an impact on their overall health. The WHO's Mike Ryan. Yes, they don't die, but we don't fully understand the long-term impacts of this disease. And anyone who's looked at patients who are severe with COVID realize that this is a very severe multi-organ disease that stresses many systems in the body. We've seen perfectly healthy young people go to hospital, have a moderate disease, and then come out and find 10, 15 weeks later, they still can't run, they can't exercise, they're out of breath, they're getting coughing uh, fits. Lastly, looking at your sports news, the head of the Tokyo Olympics Organization Committee, Yoshiri Mutu, has further postponed, says rather, further postponement of the Games is not off the table. This year's Summer Olympics were postponed until 2021 because of the coronavirus. The BBC's Alex Kepstick. Toshiro Muto said the biggest challenge was organising a safe Olympics, but that a vaccine for coronavirus was not a precondition. All sorts of countermeasures are under discussion. They include a system which would allow athletes from nations on Japan's ban list because of their high rate of infections to compete in Tokyo. Limits may be placed on the number of spectators. Mr Muto says he's interested to learn from Japan's baseball and football leagues, where capacities are currently capped at 500. He also has the task of simplifying the games, partly to save money. And while he insists the sporting competition won't be compromised, he accepts the opening and closing ceremonies could be scaled back. Channel African News, I am Onelinsinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time, and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa. Bringing you programming from an African perspective. The controversial anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine is back in the headlines after a Cameroonian-born Houston, Texas-based doctor promoted unproven claims about the drug as an effective cure for COVID-19. In the video, Dr. Stella Emanuel appears on the steps of the Washington Supreme Court to push the drug. This is despite mounting scientific evidence from multiple clinical trials which show the drug as ineffective in treating COVID-19. The viral video, tweeted and retweeted by U.S. President Donald Trump and his son, has since been removed by social media companies, but this was only after it had generated millions of views. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Hydroxychloroquine works. I have treated over 350 patients. Twitter, YouTube and Facebook have all removed the video from its platforms because it violates their COVID-19 misinformation policy. In the video, Dr. Emmanuel claims to have treated over 350 patients with COVID-19 and not one has died due to the alleged efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. The SABC is unable to verify those claims, but the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., its Food and Drug Administration, the World Health Organization, and the African Centers for Disease Control all agree that the drug offers negligible or zero reduction in mortality. America, you don't need to be afraid. COVID has a cure. Dr. Emmanuel, who's part of a group called America's Frontline Doctors, a right-wing-backed group of medics, also questioned the effectiveness of wearing masks as a mitigating factor, but has received President Trump's support. She was on air along with many other doctors. They were big fans of hydroxychloroquine, and I thought she was very impressive in the sense that from where she came, I don't know which country she comes from, but she said that she's had tremendous success with hundreds of different patients, And I thought her voice was an important voice, but I know nothing about her. The FDA withdrew an emergency authorization of the drug for COVID-19, citing its ineffectiveness, but causing serious adverse effects, including heart rhythm irregularities, 
evidence that leaders such as Trump and his counterpart in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, largely dismiss. From my standpoint, uh, and based on a lot of reading and a lot of knowledge about it, I think it could have a very positive impact in the early stages. And I don't think you lose anything by doing it, other than politically, uh, it doesn't seem to be too popular. You know why? Because I recommend it. When I recommend something, they like to say, don't use it. The same president who in April recommended injecting disinfectant into the body as a possible treatment for COVID-19. A view again dismissed by the country's top infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in an interview with ABC News this week. I go along with the, with the FDA. The, 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 the overwhelming prevailing clinical trials that have looked at the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine have indicated that it is not effective in coronavirus disease. With President Trump musing aloud why his poll numbers show Dr. Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, far more popular and trusted than he is. So it sort of is curious. A man works for us, with us very closely, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, also highly thought of. And yet they're highly thought of, but nobody likes me. It can only be my personality, that's all. The president's poll numbers suffering as a result of his response to the pandemic, with almost 4.5 million COVID-19 cases and more than 150,000 dead and rising. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. South Africa's struggle icon Andrew Mlangeni has been laid to rest next to his wife June Mlangeni at the Rudaport Cemetery in Dobsonville, Soweto, yesterday. He died last Tuesday at the age of 95. Earlier, President Cyril Ramaphosa and a handful of his family members attended his funeral service at the University of Johannesburg, Soweto campus. Ramaphosa delivered the eulogy, while former President Tabombeki paid a virtual tribute as a veteran and family friend. Debo Mugobo compiled this report. We say today that we will always remember you. It's a final goodbye to a selfless champion of South Africa's liberation struggle. And President Ramaphosa said his passing marks the end of an era of integrity selflessness and servitude. His passing marks the end of an era. He belonged to an era of tireless struggle, of sacrifice and service, of honor and integrity. It was an era of leaders who embodied the best in humanity. But he was also one of the last of extraordinary generation of freedom fighters. He served his movement and his country loyally for over seven decades. The struggle for freedom and democracy was his life. And the freedom that we enjoy today is his legacy to us. And in his memory, he pledged to defeat all the social ills that have come to characterize South Africa's body politic. Let us declare here in honor and in memory of Andrew Mlangen that we will not submit to poverty and inequality. We will not submit to corruption, greed, mismanagement and complacency and to the abuse of public resources. We have to fight for honest, committed and capable leaders, for democratic institutions that are strong and durable for the rule of law and the realization of equal rights for all. For his part, former President Tabumbek, who is also a veteran and a family friend, said the renewal of the ANC would be a fitting farewell to Ntadim Langini. Unless we renew the ANC, indeed as was called for by that 54th National Conference. And I think if we do that, this would be a very, very good farewell to such an outstanding person as Andrew Langini was. Calls have been made, for instance, that the ANC should constitute a consultative conference specifically to look at this matter of its renewal. We need renewal of the ANC so that the ANC can then discharge its responsibility towards the people and allow the old man and Mlangeni to rest in peace. From his foundation, Malose Kikana says the best honor for the struggle icon is to give the ANC integrity committee that he once chaired more power to do its job. Ndadam Langin, despite his contribution, was not widely recognized. Not a street or building, at least to my knowledge, are named after him. And those things did not matter to him. 
If you wish to honor the memory of Ndadamlangen, I propose that, Mr. President, you spearhead a change of the ANC Constitution to make the Integrity Commission an independent constitutional structure that does not report to the NEC but to conference. These veterans are one of two strong pillars that is holding up our movement, the other pillar being the support we enjoy from our people. Revered for his humility and simplicity, Ntatem Langen lived amongst his people in Soweto, and even in death is amongst his people buried at the Rodipot Cemetery in Dobsonville. I am Tebumokobo in Soweto. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided that all public schools should take a break for the next four weeks. Now, this has also been the experience in a number of other countries where schools have opened and have also had to close due to the circumstances that each country has had to confront. This means that schools will be closed from the 27th July and will reopen on the 24th of August. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus COVID-19 for Channel Africa in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, I'm Coletta Wanjohi. Once contaminated, hands can transfer the virus to your eyes, nose or mouth. From there, the virus can enter your body and make you sick. It's 7.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Members of the Portfolio Committee on Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs have described as unacceptable the failure by the Gauteng Provincial Government to appear before it last night to update them on their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The scheduled meeting had to be cancelled after the Gauteng Provincial Government made a no-show. MPs were told that the provincial government's executive committee was holding an emergency meeting to discuss the controversy over a multi-million rand tender for the procurement of private protection equipment for the provincial health department. The controversial tender has resulted in presidential spokesperson Kusela Diko taking a leave of absence. Lula Mamadia reports. The provincial government was to be grilled about the awarding of two tenders to the Royal Baitza projects, which is owned by King Tandisizwe Digo, husband to presidential spokesperson Kusela Digo. Committee chairperson Faith Mutambi informed committee members that she received an apology from the provincial government. They request us to give them a date to come after they process the matter as the provincial executive this evening. So their meeting has already started as well at six. And then I felt it will, it will be fair enough because remember the time we scheduled them already, uh, 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 we, had, uh, we didn't know about this latest development that you've seen in the media. So they are saying their play is to, to make sure that uh, when they when they come to us, they should also be able to appraise us on the latest developments. This didn't go down well with committee members from ANC, DA and EFF. But I do uh, share the concerns that you've expressed. I think it's unacceptable. Um, but yeah, that's what we have to deal with. Um, and it's, it's only going to make it more difficult when they eventually arrive here. So I hope they'll take this time to give us some proper answers about what's going on in Gauteng. It's unacceptable that we just be told while we have prepared for this meeting. At least if you have been told, I mean, before, and then instead of coming here and camp here, and only to find out that the meeting is postponed, it's not acceptable. But as Honorable Brink and yourself, you said there's nothing we can do, but we must register our disappointment and we must also register the fact that it is, I mean, is a very undermining of the committee. No, I fully concur with you. It's even worse when we have been forwarded a presentation prepared by the very same um, uh, uh, government. Uh, 
which indicates uh, that indeed they knew well in advance that tonight at six o'clock they needed to appear before the portfolio committee of Cogta. Uh, the last minute uh, cancellation because they want to prioritize what they perceive as more important to them than our committee, it's really unacceptable. And I think we need to register our disappointment the next time they appear before us. Call it- A date for the next meeting is yet to be set. Lula Mamaika in Parliament. The family of a nine-year-old learner who was denied entry into a Johannesburg private Christian school for wearing isipandla says they are taking legal action against the school. The learner's mother, Nelly Sisilana Mtembu, says her son will not return to Christian Life private school after he was barred from entering the school for wearing the bracelet made from animal skin. Prabashni Mudli reports. It's believed the nine-year-old boy was initially asked to wear long sleeves in order to hide the bracelet that he received from his family in KwaZulu-Natal as an introduction to his father's surname. The child's mother, Nelly Sisalane Mtembu, says the final straw for the family was when their son was barred from entering the school premises and sent home with the letter explaining that Isipanda clashes with the school's Christian beliefs. The parents were called to a meeting at the school on Monday where Mtembu says the school apologized but at the same time called her culture demonic. I felt like that it was such an attack and I felt that the school were actually supposed to call us and sit us down just to get an insight from our side as parents just to know what the Isipandla was for instead of them concluding that it's some sort of protection from the ancestors and it clashes with their religion as Christians. They invited us to a meeting on Monday. So they said they were going to pray to the God that his panda falls off sooner so that he can go back to school. And it really hurt me. Even the harsh statement that was made by the pastor, the whole connection to the spirit word and ancestors is, 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 is demonic. We have decided the whole matter now is going to be in our attorney's hands going forward. Officials from the Gauteng Department of Education visited the school this week and they've advised the school management to reinstate the pupil. Department spokesperson Steve Mabona. When we interacted with the school, we understood that the school was established on certain beliefs. It's a Christian school. In their policies, it was not explicit enough to say what is it that is allowed and what is it that is not allowed. It was um, important to advise the school that uh, probably the child must be reinstated. They will then have to make sure that in their policies, they are quite clear on their beliefs. As a matter of principle, it was agreed that this child will be then reinstated. After widespread media attention, the South African Human Rights Commission says it will conduct its own investigation into the matter. The commission's Boang Jones says they want to establish if the child's rights have been infringed in any way. The investigation will seek to ascertain whether the alleged incident constitutes a prima facie violation of the human rights of the learner. In particular, the assessment will seek to determine whether the right to equality on the grounds of culture, the right to human dignity, the freedom of religion, belief and opinion, the right to education and the right to just administrative processes have been violated or not. The Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities, or CRL, says the incident smacks of cultural intolerance. CRL Commissioner Professor Patika Ntuli. When that happened, we know that uh, the underlying thing is that there's a cultural intolerance. The letter that says that uh, they do not allow this. Uh, you know, child worships, uh, you know, uh, you know, in ancestors. One begins to wonder whether these principles there has read Matthew chapter one, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That goes over into twenty-five. Uh, uh, you know, it's either sheer ignorance or blatant racist attitude. SABC News has contacted the school for comment. However, the officials were in a meeting at the time. No response has yet been received at the time of broadcast. Prabashni Murli, Johannesburg. 
It's 7.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. There has been a marked increase in the demand for training material on how to manufacture coffins and caskets in South Africa's lockdown. As according to Peter Lowe of South African Coffin Training School based in Boxburg on Gauteng's East Rand. Lowe says the increased number of deaths due to the COVID-19 pandemic has also led to high demand for funeral services as well as burial space. Wisani Makubele reports. As the number of COVID-19-related deaths rise, so does the demand for funeral services, resulting in more business opportunities in the funeral sector. Peter Lowe of the SA Coffin Training School says his institution, which was established in 2002, has also seen a significant increase in the number of prospective students who want to learn how to manufacture coffins. Since the lockdown, there has been a marked increase in the demand for coffins and caskets training material. People not only want to supplement the existing business, but they also want to enter this market due to the increased demand, obviously, for coffins and caskets during this period. And our impression of this market at the moment, sadly, um, as you are aware, there is clearly an increased demand not only for coffins and caskets, but funeral services in general. And while you know, while we trust undertakers can cope with the increased demand, the aspect of burial space is somewhat worrying and a critical issue. Lowe says due to high demand for training, there are plans to open another school in the Western Cape. He explains what is taught at the school. Students are taught how to manufacture, physically taught how to manufacture a coffin and a casket by our tutor, who is a qualified carpenter. Students are also taught how to fit all the trimmings and handles, as also the lining of the interior with plastic and fitting of the nameplate. The different methods of wood staining and painting is also covered in the course material, and the latter is obviously very important. So that's how you get all your different looks of wood, etc. One of the former students at the school, Michelle Webb, says she has already ordered manufacturing material less than two weeks after attending the two-day course and plans to start with the project soon. Due to the COVID-19, when lockdown started, it unfortunately affected my husband's line of work, so we needed an an income. And we thought to ourselves that um, we would like to do something that will contribute, you know, to society and also possibly help with the unemployment crisis. And we've also got a, a very big property with two empty warehouses on. And we thought, well, we could manufacture something. And we investigated coffins and then we found pizza and we decided to go with him. And they physically show you how to build the casket in the coffin, which is really nice, you know. So it's not just theory, it's actually physically, practically showing you how to, how to build something. Webb says the skills she learned at the school are broad and not only limited to coffin making. Another former student at the school, Leon Sneeman, agrees. However, Sneeman says he's not venturing into this business due to COVID-19. He says he worked for his father who passed away a few months ago and only now will he follow his own path. We had some bad news in the beginning of the year. My father passed away and uh, I was working for him. We were doing work on boilers and stuff was on the internet one night, just saw the coffins and stuff, you know, so I applied for the course and, uh, well, I did it, what, two weeks ago and I'm all unhappy and, and I wanted to go and see what this is like and do it. I've got my woodworking skills, I'm a qualified cabinet maker and I want to take my, my actual trade, I want to go forward with it, you know. Depending on the budget, coffins and caskets can cost bereaving families anywhere between 3,000 and 50,000 rand. I'm Wisani Makubele in Johannesburg. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. the globe every second there's always a breaking story 
we call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors, and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary. Channel Africa. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Onel Nzinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Malayan Prime Minister Bubu Sis urges political opponents to reconsider establishing a new unit government after the rejection of the most recent compromise proposed to quell the ever-mounting political crisis in the country. Two Zimbabwean doctors have confirmed that seven babies were still born at Harare Central Hospital in Zimbabwe as nurses strike over the lack of personal protective equipment and Madagascar's COVID-19 caseload hits the 10,000 mark. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelins Inzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. Opposition leaders in Mali have rejected a plan by ECOWAS, a grouping of West African governments, to end the country's spiraling crisis and are insisting that President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita resign. This comes as West African leaders on Monday called for the creation of a unity government in the country and a fresh vote after disputed elections but warned of sanctions against those opposing efforts to end the crisis. Keita, in power since 2013, faced huge challenges, not least an eight-year jihadist revolt and a slumping economy. For more on this, Channel Africa's Kumbele Munjalele spoke to Kasum Kulibali, Malian political expert. He began by asking him whether all the opposition parties are rejecting the plan, or only a few of them. I can say that uh, the proposal uh, made by ECOWAS is just uh, some key proposal for uh, for discussion between uh, the, the the president and the opposition coalition. Uh, since uh, it has been released, I think that uh, the government uh, has taken it as a formal agreement. So they are in the position of implementing all of the points, but uh, as I said, as, as, as now I am speaking to you, the opposition coalition has uh, not rejected all of them, I can say that, but they want uh, some points to be addressed very well before engaging themselves in the process. But this afternoon they have a meeting to decide what to do after that pro- proposal coming from the, the, the ECOWAS uh, head of state meeting. Uh, taken on Monday. Sure. But uh, what we can say that at time they have agreed that uh, to let the president continue his uh, term uh, until 2023. This point is in the agreement for me now because they already accept that. But what they want exactly is to see what are the key next points on the uh, challenge facing the challenge of governance challenges and corruption and. What, what can be done in a plan, a plan of action before selecting the people who want to be ministers and prime ministers and to lead this process of change in Mali? This is the point now. I think that they are focused on that. But I hope they can accept the agreement. Now, the plan uh, talks about the sanctions that should be imposed on anyone who stands in the way of resolving this crisis. Do you think threatening the use of sanctions would be helpful at this stage for this process? Uh, I am a bit afraid because uh, this kind of sanctions um, cannot make people act positively. I'm sure this is making making a mistake because there are some people who are taking the guns, you know, uh, from the from the north part, and they are killing 
uh, over Malian, no sanction has been taken by ECOWAS. You see, there are some people who are still killing people in the central part of Mali. No sanction has been taken by anybody. You have the people who have done a coup in 2012. No sanction has been taken by ECOWAS. And the ECOWAS itself has uh, let the president, Amadi Tumari to resign in 2012. You see, when they come now and they say that if you don't uh, uh, facilitate the application of, of this peace agreement, you will be uh, punished, you will be uh, get the sanction. I'm not sure this is the best way. For me, in that position, we need to have all, of, all on board and to try to negotiate the process and to have an agreement or or we can facilitate a political dialogue between the, the, all of the parties. Because now it is not one, two, it is not only two parties, it's uh, a lot of, in all of the society of Mali. To see what do we need to make this country work very well. In good governance, in anti-corruption way, and providing economic and uh, development for all. Now, you spoke earlier about uh, the parties having agreed on uh, President Keita to remain in the position until uh, 2023. What should happen after that? Yeah, after 2023, President Keita is in uh, the second term now. And in the constitution of the Republic of Mali, you, one president can only do two terms. And after that, it's finished for him. It's finished his two terms, and we, can, we will have a new presidential election, and we can choose a new president for the Republic of Mali. The United Nations Security Council has also weighed in on this matter, endorsing the efforts of ECOWAS and also voicing deep concern over the crisis. Surely a prolonged crisis is not good for the country, isn't it? Are you getting a sense that a favorable environment exists at the moment? that allows for an inclusive political dialogue? Uh, for me, it's, uh, we are, it's very difficult now because the people, the, the two parties, were mainly and uh, all of the society, has a low trust, trust, trust between all of them, each, each among, uh, among us. For me, we need to, to wait, not to push, to have a hurry, uh, you have to get, you know, uh, an agreement right now. For me, we need to be careful. We need to be careful to, to, to build uh, a trust between all of the parties and to engage the political dialogue before we continue to implement the proposals made by ECOWAS. Because first, you know, after the meeting of the head of state on Monday, in the night, the president has already, you know, uh, uh, nominated six new ministers of foreign affairs, uh, defense, uh, you know, uh, territorial administration, uh, finance, you know, security and justice. We don't, we cannot understand. After two hours after the meeting of the head of state, the president has, has selected six new ministers. You can say that, oh, you can do that before, because we are now 45 days without government in Mali. That's Kasum Kulibali, political expert in Mali, on the line from the capital, Bamako, speaking to Kumbela Mujelele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. In each and every one of us, there, there is, is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by design, design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African perspective. perspective. 
For your latest update on COVID-19, that is the novel coronavirus, I'm Hilda Kekera for Channel Africa in Livingston, Zambia. When someone coughs or sneezes, they spray small liquid droplets from their nose or mouth which may contain the virus. If you are too close, you can breathe in the droplets, including the COVID-19 virus, if the person coughing has the disease. It's 7.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Family, friends, actors and fans continue to mourn the passing of actress and businesswoman Candy Muloi. She has been described as a person who stood for what she believed in. Muloi was commonly known as Makadzi on SABC2 Soapy Mubango. Though she had long left the drama, she recently appeared on SABC2 to telenovela Giani, Land of Blood. A 67-year-old succumbed to cancer on Tuesday night. Horisani Satole reports. Born on the 10th of February 1953 at Ilim Hospital in Limpopo, Kendimuloi spent most of her childhood at Gambani village in Venda, where her father used to work as a teacher. Muloi became one of the most loved characters on SABC2 Sobi Mubango for her role as Makazi. She was, however, not new to broadcasting. She used to host the Shitsonga and Shivenda TV show, Swahombe Zwa Family spokesperson Chandukani Nesengani says she will be dearly missed. We're broken because we've lost someone that was very key in the family. And not just immediate family, but uh, the community at large and South Africa. She was one person that uh, will welcome everyone into a space. She will be able to talk to anyone. She'll be able to get to anyone's level and still be able to have a decent conversation, uh, a very lovely, warm-hearted and sweet person. We've lost a mother, a leader. Although Muloi had left Mubango a while ago, during her many years at the SOPI, she played a very powerful role of Oma Kazi, an aunt and advisor to the Mukwebo chief Azwindini, played by Gabriel Demuzani. He recalls fond moments with her. Mom Kendi, she would tell you that, you know, in life you have to do what I call multi-stream that, you know, focusing on one salary won't take you wherever you are. And she will tell you, nah, I do this and that, and then 10 cents plus 10 cents is 20 cents. So that's one of the things that I learned from her. And also, she would treat people the same, regardless of, you know, their social standing. So her humility was always on par. Colleague Chamano Makadi says they had planned to do so much more. Mrs. Kendi Muloi is someone that I, I knew very well. Having worked with her for for many 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 years, we were also planning a documentary film just to basically tell the story of her life. And I'm deeply saddened that last night she left us, and the the story which was so so rich, uh, we cannot uh, have the voice of Kendi Moloyi uh, taking us through uh, that journey. One of her last appearances was on SABC2 drama Giani Land of Blood. A fence says she'll be missed. Makadzi was a very phenomenal actress who will remain in the history books of South African arts and entertainment. My early encounter with Makadzi was when she was still presenting Zwahombe Zwantesa. Makadzi is a Muloi's memorial service will be held at her home in Bryanston on Thursday morning under strict lockdown regulations. The family will then proceed to Limpopo, where she will be laid to rest. That report by Horisani Sitole. Almost one quarter of women of reproductive age living in low- and middle-income countries has an unmet need for modern contraception. This is one of the findings of a study by the research and policy organization, the Gut Matcher Institute, released this week under the title adding it up. To discuss this further, Samara Mangesi spoke to Dr. Elizabeth Sully, the lead author of the study from Washington, D.C. I think adding it up is a critical study, and in this time, actually, now more than ever, when we're looking at how strained our healthcare systems are and thinking about what we need to make them work efficiently, are, you know, this, we find that there are 218 million women with an unmet need for modern contraception in low- and middle-income countries, 
But we also estimate other types of critical sexual reproductive health needs and find that there are millions of women who are not receiving these essential services that they want to be accessing and should be in order to have their sexual and reproductive rights met. This includes many women not delivering in health facilities or receiving essential antenatal care visits. It includes 35 million women in low and middle income countries who have unsafe abortions each year and 133 million women who are who don't receive treatment for the four major curable sexually transmitted infections. So what we document in this report is the need is great, but what we show is that when we meet that need, the impact we're going to have is going to be tremendous. We're going to see two-thirds declines in unintended pregnancies, in unsafe abortions, and in maternal deaths. And we really, I think the, the critical part is we make the investment case, and that's what we're really trying to have policymakers pay attention to in this moment when they're thinking so critically about how their health resources are being spent. And we show, you know, it's just $10.60 per person per year in low and middle income countries. It's all it would cost to provide a, a comprehensive package of sexual and reproductive health services. And what are some of the key findings that you found striking as the lead author? So I think just the, the number of women that continue uh, to remain in need, adding it up as a report that we have produced over the last 15 years. And it's and each year we 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 assess all of the new data that's available and national surveys coming from countries and we draw new international guidelines and standards of care and, and look at what it would cost to meet this need. And it's just striking that there are millions of women that continue to remain in need of these essential services and that we have not acted yet. It's, it's striking to me that we there's a clear investment case. We know that when you invest in contraceptive care, you're going to end up saving money in your maternal and newborn health care services that you're providing. So it's a, it's a smart investment. It's a cost savings investment. People need these services. They have a right to these services. And it's shocking to me that we, we haven't stepped up to do more yet. And uh, were you able to establish some of the reasons why reproductive health services fall short of women's needs in some parts of the world? Yeah, I, I think there's, there are a lot of different reasons for, for why, why our services are currently falling short. I think a lot of people point to access first, but access is really just one part of the, the picture. It's also about how our health systems are set up to begin with. It's about the information that's available to people. It's also about looking at inequities, that we find that it's the poorest women in the poorest households who are least able to access these services. And so it's, it's about figuring out who's, who's the least able to reach these services, who are the most marginalized and vulnerable populations, and ensuring that those are the ones that we're really targeting in order to, to meet the need, that we're finding ways to get them access to this care that they want and that they need. Does the report make some key recommendations on how countries can meet women's needs for modern contraception, pregnancy-related, and newborn care? Yeah, I think the, the, big, the big point that we make is it's about countries prioritizing and investing in this. This includes putting a comprehensive package of sexual and reproductive health services as part of the universal health coverage plan, that countries are committed to a goal of universal health coverage and need to be thinking about sexual and reproductive health as part of it. We also call attention to the specific steps that can be taken in this moment right now when our health systems are in crisis, when we are facing the, the pandemic of COVID in, in all countries around the world. And that means shoring up, making sure that these are designated essential services so people can continue to be accessing them. It's shoring up um, access to supplies and medicines, promoting innovative methods of accessing health and telehealth options. And so we can sort of seize on this moment right now to be creative and innovative in how we make these investments to ensure that people are able to access this care now more than ever when, when it's so difficult to do so. Right. And what message do you think the international community needs to draw from the study regarding the sexual and reproductive care for all women, especially at a time when the world is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? I think the critical thing is, is for the world to understand that these are time-sensitive and essential services. That while countries are under lockdown, there is no lockdown on sex, that these services are going to continue to be required um, and that we need to be making investments today and for the future, that we can't really think of these as a drain on resources now. They're not. These represent investments in the future and in our populations. And we're going to see incredible gains in terms of women living healthier lives. We'll see more lives saved where we can actually end up saving costs in our health systems, and it's going to help us meet some of our, our development goals that we're striving towards. And so I think we need to think of this as not just about uh, services that women themselves need, but services that are important for entire countries and for building strong communities and societies. That was Dr. Elizabeth Sully, the lead author of the study on the line from Washington, speaking to Samora Mankesi. Mm-hmm.
There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa, bringing you programming from an African perspective. Bringing your latest updates on the novel coronavirus, I am Silvanus Kalemera for Channel Africa in Kigali in Rwanda. For the advice given by a healthcare provider, your national and local public health authority, or your employer, on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program might not be broadcast at the usual time, and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa, bringing you programming from an African perspective. It's 7.50 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Good morning. You're listening to Channel Africa. Kenya Airways will be forced to inspect afresh the engines of its 10 Boeing 737 new generation aircraft after the U.S. aviation regulator warned that they could stall mid-air after being grounded for months. The Federal Aviation Authority says that Boeing 737NG aircraft that have been idle since the outbreak of COVID-19 could form corrosion on the air check valves an anomaly that can lead to stalling of the two engines when the airplane is flying. Kenya Civil Aviation Authority Director General Gilbert Kibes says that they had received communication from the Federal Aviation saying that the agency will ensure local carriers such as Kenya Airways are in compliance. Still in Kenya, the central bank has held its benchmark lending rate at 7.0% for the third time in a row on Wednesday, saying its current easing stance was having the desired effect. Like other central banks around the world, the policymakers in the East African nation adopted a range of easing measures at the onset of the coronavirus crisis in March and April to try to limit the damage to the economy. The bank's Monetary Policy Committee says that the package of policy measures implemented since March were having the intended effect on the economy. South Africa's Standard Bank says its half-year profit could drop by as much as 50% as the coronavirus crisis hits its businesses. Africa's biggest bank by assets, along with all South Africa's major lenders, had already warned that profits would likely be at least 20% lower, with the pandemic prompting a spike in bad loans and also hitting new business and fee income from transactions. Its headline earnings per share, the main profit measure in South Africa for the six months to June the 30th, would likely fall by between 30% and 50% compared to the 8.37.4 cents it reported in the same period last year. The poultry industry of Zambia has recorded a 30% drop in the output of the broiler subsector during the first half of this year, following the closure of hotels and lodges. Poultry Association of Zambia Executive Manager Dominic Chanda says that some producers scaled down on production due to uncertainties surrounding the policy direction aimed at curbing the outbreak of coronavirus. 
Chanda says a policy direction uncertainties and the closure of certain sectors, specifically the tourism sector, which resulted in the closure of hotels, lodges and restriction on the number of gatherings of entertainment in nature, resulted in a number of small-scale, medium, commercial and large-scale poultry farmers to scale down the broiler bird placement. The chief executives of four of the world's most powerful tech companies have been defending the reach and power of their firms to the U.S. Congress. Appearing by video link before the hearing, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Sander Pichai of Google and Tim Cook of Apple were questioned for more than five hours. U.S. lawmakers are considering tougher regulation to equalize competition in the sector. The BBC's Alim McBull has more. Jeff Bezos looked uncomfortable as he was grilled on Amazon's treatment of small third-party companies it works with. Tim Cook put on the spot about the cut Apple takes from products bought through its app store. And Mark Zuckerberg faltered as he was questioned on whether Facebook had systematically worked to copy and crush competition. The chief executives tried to portray their dominance of the market as American success stories. Republicans were more sympathetic to that argument, but said they had another problem with these tech giants, a perception that they all had a liberal bias. The US dollar is trading at 36.36 Nigerian Nara, 11.29 Botswana Pula, 106.70 Kenyan Shilling and 18.22 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil, one US dollar will cost you 5 rule 15 Russia. 72 rubles 45, India 74 rupees 58, China 7 yuan 99 and in South Africa it will cost you 16 rand 49. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro, gold $1,953, platinum $924 per ounce, Brent crude $43.69 a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Wiseman Mangwele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327. Tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mtande by Musa featuring Robbie Malinga. Keep well and stay safe. Oh, 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 oh,